0: Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Cut 1, the safety act. This is a podcast for members of the autonomous community whose products, services, or software can be used to protect people and things. So if your drone or driverless vehicle, or even your research helps with protecting and detecting and identifying or deterring bad things or bad people, you'll wanna turn up the volume. Because this is the story of how you can literally save your company from catastrophic litigation, limit damages, and in the process, differentiate yourself and your company with a certification or a designation straight from the U.S. government. But I think for far too many companies, this is really being missed on their lidar, and that's because the word choice is made in creating this program, really using too common of a name, is making a really powerful program hidden in plain sight. Chapter one: A name and a brand. We all know a name and a brand is everything. A brand can drive our emotions. Think Apple, think that Super Bowl commercial, think that commercial everybody talks about. When that sledgehammer goes flying through the screen, how can you not wanna grab your own sledgehammer and break a screen into 10,000 pieces? And what about a name? Could the name Microsoft ever be mistaken for a fast food restaurant? I mean, you are not gonna look for fries and a shake under a Microsoft sign. Yet, I think often a name can be so simple that it accidentally hides something profound. that's what I think about when I hear the word safety act. I mean, think about it. Sounds good, doesn't it? Safety, everybody wants to be safe. That's good. Act, make it sounds like a law. Laws are good, aren't they? So all of this must be good, a good law that makes everybody safe. But what does that do? What does safety act do? What does safety act mean? Now what if I told you that the name really doesn't help anyone understand what Safety Act can do for you and your company? So today, we're going to talk with one of the nation's leading experts on Safety Act, Achmel Ali, principal at Catalyst DC, and he's going to take it out of the shadows and explain this powerful tool provided by Congress that can make a difference to your company and its technology, and he knows because he was there from the very beginning. Well, Akmel, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. And folks, today we have Akmel Ali. Um, he's a principal at Catalyst Partners, and I would say he's one of the nation's leading experts in Safety Act. We're really pleased to have you today. And uh, the way I usually start these, Akmel, is tell me a little bit about why you're involved in Homeland Security. What's, uh, what's so exciting about Homeland Security where you've decided to devote a large part of your professional career to Homeland.
1: Sure, so I was, um, I was in college on 9-11, and so I think I was part of that sort of demographic where we saw what happened to the nation at a part, time of our lives where you know we were, we were making decisions on what we wanted to do for a living. And obviously, I don't think w- when that happened, I knew I was gonna go into Homeland Security, but I knew there was a mission to be served out there. And I, I went to law school at Syracuse University and by chance, they had a a program called the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism, Skit, which had just really started. Uh-huh. And we had one of the premier um, professors in the, in the nation, in the world, really, on counterterrorism national security law. So I took one of those classes, took another one. Next thing you know, I'm a couple of classes away from completing the certificate. And so I, I knew from day one I wanted to come to D.C. I just didn't know, in, you know what, what I wanted to do. And after completing that program, it seemed pretty obvious. Um, so I ended up in DHS, and, but by chance I ended up in the Safety Act office. I didn't no idea what the Safety Act was, I just landed there. But as the, my sort of career has grown and gotten really involved in the Homeland Security mission, uh, it's one of the most rewarding careers I think you can have. Because at the end of the day, the crossroads between Safety Act, Homeland Security, and the private industry is really exciting. We're seeing entrepreneurs develop technology, we're seeing um, very well-known Fortune 50 companies looking and finding ways to get better at security. And so it's fun to grow a business, but at the same time, we're having impact to make the nation a little safer, whether it's at stadiums or airports or a, a widget manufacturer, it's 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 an, it's a booming industry. Obviously, there's some scary stuff that goes on in the Homeland Security world, but at the end of the day, it's good, good people trying to do good things to stop bad people.
0: So you mentioned something interesting. You said that when you went to DHS, you didn't know what the Safety Act is or was. And one of the interesting things that you may not know sitting here right now is that the introduction to this podcast talks about how Safety Act is probably a pretty well-kept secret. Not, not in so much as people aren't talking about it, but maybe because Safety Act, the name itself, doesn't fully express the power of what this tool is. Um, did you find that? Are people seeing that right now?
1: You know, I'm glad you asked that. When I was still working at the department, I was at a, earlier in my career, I was at a a sports security conference and the secretary at the time, who I won't embarrass and use him by name, but I remember at the time, you know, when the secretary goes to present somewhere, people who work on her staff in the department give, you know, read aheads and briefings. and, And so we briefed her on the Safety Act and Here's what it is, here's uh, what it does and you might be asked this question at this conference and I attended the conference because it was germane to my work and we get there and someone raised their hand and said, so um, Madam Secretary, obviously, she, what, is, uh, what does Safety Act mean to you? How does it fall on your objective and what does it mean to our industry? And she looked at them in the face and said, well, you know, I think safety is important for everybody. You know, OSHA standards and uh, all of these things are really important and we all kind of all uh, kind of did cringing because. That's nothing to do with what the SAFETY-X about. Obviously, as you know, the SAFETY-X stands for Support Anti-Terrorism by Fostering Effective Technologies Act of 2002, another D, you know, DC-centric you know, acronym. But yes, I think it's the worst best-kept secret. Um, worse than that, it's a program that was designed to be out there. With mm-hmm. the private sector it is a private sector program It is one of the few programs that provides the private sector something tangible um but you know admittedly the program office is small they've got a limited budget they've done a lot with that limited budget but one of the things that's hurt them is that having a limited budget you, you can only do so much you can only go to so many conferences and and um you know so it unfortunately not, not enough people know about it but it's starting to pick up in a lot of different industries
0: and we'll talk about that as we go on i mean you know, you mentioned that uh, Safety Act is really short for a pretty long name. Um, it's missing the Y. Should the Y be like "You betcha"? I got gotcha. Safety Act. You betcha. That's um, funny.
1: You picked up on that. I used to always t- joke joke about that Y, this <laughs> mysterious Y.
0: Um, so let, let's maybe hit the nuts and bolts of what the Safety Act is. I mean, obviously, it has its origins in 9/11, and there's a world before 9/11 and how that looked like in insurance and reinsurance there's a world after 9-11 of which safety act is an important part of can you kind of give us a history of how this whole idea got put together what were the forces economic political how did they come together to get the congress to pass the safety act
1: sure i think we we go back a few years before 9-11 and look at the 1993 world trade center bombing case obviously we all recall what happened on that day but not a lot of people know that the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, who were the landlords of the World Trade Center, um, were actually found, um, held roughly 65%, maybe just even a little bit more, 65% liable of the, for the attacks, and the terrorists themselves, 35% liable, which is a pretty jaw-dropping decision. You don't have to be a, an insurance or be a lawyer to do the math and find that to be a little unfair. How could uh, an organization who are otherwise victims of the attack themselves Be held more liable than the actual terrorists who carry them out. Um, And so, you know, what we used to say when I was at DHS, and I'm sure they still say it today, is you can't sue a terrorist. They're either dead, they have no money, or you can't access their money. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, you have people who do need to recover people who have lost loved ones, people who are injured themselves. You have businesses that have been disrupted. So, unfortunately, what you end up having is businesses having to, you know, answer to why the attack occurred, even though they tried to take steps to mitigate it. The Port Authority in this case had run a risk assessment a couple of years in advance of the attack. That risk assessment had pointed out some issues with the parking garage. The Port Authority did what any other business would do, rightfully so, do a cost benefit analysis. I can't stop everything. We only have a limited budget. Let's do what, what we can to prevent something. Mind, mind you, to be good stewards of a public venue. They weren't required to do this. Um, there was no best practice on how to do it. They said, let's just try to be good stewards of the public venue. And at the end of the day, it really ended up uh, uh, costing them, you know, lots of money in legal fees. The court, I think this case went 12 years, just the first case, and it was on appeal and supreme. So when you've got that long history, I think a lot of venue operators were on notice saying, hey, the more you try, the more you're actually probably exposing yourself. And that's, as a policy matter, something we don't want. Um, within Homeland Security. We want to have operators in the private sector pushing the envelope. We want them taking those risks to try to make the nation safer. And I think that case really put a lot of people on notice. When you fast forward to 9-11, some of the same um, characteristics were there as far as the lawsuits. Obviously, uh, one of the worst days, if not worst day in U.S. history um, with what happened there. So I want to be mindful on how we talk about that day. but the same type of lawsuits were, were raised against businesses who were otherwise victims of the attack. So as a result, Congress said, well, how can we find ways to motivate the private sector to continue pushing these initiatives without the fear of liability being so large that it scares them from walking away? And that's kind of why the program was designed.
0: So um, one of the things that I think is important to this story is maybe what is the definition of catastrophe before and after 9-11? Um, don't you think that when people were thinking about what is the worst thing that I had to cover my company for in terms of catastrophic loss, that their thinking really didn't hit the magnitude of what we saw in 9-11, and then 9-11 rewrites what the definition of catastrophe is?
1: Uh, totally. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, you'd be, you know, you've got a, a wealth of information to, to speak on this topic as well. I mean, I think the, the we were limited by our imagination, as you've heard a lot of people say. Uh, before 9-11 and after 9-11 and unfortunately after this recent series of attacks in the last three or four years we've seen that the imagination of the bad folks um, is pretty wide and and we've just got to catch up so before it might have been more you know weather related catastrophic events um, malfunction property damage those types of things and and now it's really you know could be a concerted plan of three active shooters entering one public venue at the same time with explosions and all sorts of things and that's not too far from reality these days unfortunately
0: and and if if this was the period before 9-11 and I went to the insurance company the reinsurance community and I said I want to be covered for this horrible catastrophe where there could be thousands of mass casualties was that something that they were prepared to deal with or did the industry really not have products that would cover that because of the magnitude of the loss that they might sustain?
1: That's a great question. I don't, I don't have the, the full answer, but my understanding is that the market kind of was maybe underwriting it, not knowing what they're getting into. And as soon as 9-11 hit, obviously, you know, the there were either no options on the market or prices soared, mm-hmm. right? And so that was one of the reasons why Safety Act was created to help people um, protect businesses in a market where you just couldn't get a whole lot of insurance and then of course comes TRIA, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act that tries to put a backstop on the marketplace in the insurance world to try to get more people in the in the market.
0: So we started talking about this Akmel but what would be what would be the definition of safety act? So if someone was sitting across from the table from you and how would you define it? What's the and what's the what's the business proposition for the safety act.
1: How about in our scenario, can I play with the scenario a little Absolutely. bit? What if this is a person in the EU asking how they could, why they should replicate this program for their constituents might be a little different answer than if I define it for someone who's looking to, to obtain the protections. I think from a policy reason, it's one, policy perspective, it's one of the most successful programs on a multiple fronts. I think it's successful because it truly has impacted, in a lot of ways, changed the way different subsectors of industries look and approach the threat that terrorism brings with it. I mean, wholesale changes. And if you look at what ha- what's happening in the professional sports world, um, from the NFL first getting safety act back in 08, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and development of best practices, and really trying to work with their stadium operators on how to advance security at the at the ground level. Um, to what's happening in the technology world, innovation of technology, um, critical infrastructure, things like the George Washington Bridge has safety act coverage now. It's not just guns, guards, and gates. It can be structural hardening, architectural and design. It's cybersecurity, and all at a very, very nominal cost to the taxpayers. This program uh, budget has not basically moved since I was there in 07. And it's a very small number uh, relative to the larger go- government budget. So it's not regulation either. And that's the really neat thing about this program. Why is this not regulation? It's not regulation because it's not required, oh. right? It's all voluntarily based. So if you want business owner to be involved and reap the benefits of the protections, it's there for you. Get it if you want it. And if you don't, be about your business. And I think a lot of businesses appreciate that as opposed to, you know, there's been some other regulatory programs in DHS that have, Really good objectives and really good intent, but the execution is just really, really hard. If you recall back in the beginning when the chemical facilities anti-terrorism standards was the CFAT's program started, they had a little bit of uh, some challenges in the regulatory part about it. And there's some other things that go along with that. Well, in the, in the Safety Act, it's the, 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 the cream of the crop rise. And if you want to be part of that, you can. There's a process to work with the Safety Act office to find ways to get better. So I think uh, for a number of reasons, the fact that it's actually had significant impact in making the nation safer, it's finding really cool and innovative companies to shine, it's costing this taxpayers very little, Mm -hmm. and it's not a regulation. I think that's a really unique program compared to other things in the government.
0: And now a brief break. Today's podcast is supported by Catalyst Partners, a government relations and public affairs firm that provides high caliber services and high touch attention to their clients. Music is provided by Cloud9, that's Cloud9 spelled the Scottish way, C-L-E-O-D-9 music.com. Now back to our podcast on the Safety Act with Achmel. So if I'm a company and I hear about Safety Act and I think this thing must have really two things in it for me. Um, the first one is either I can protect my company from catastrophic loss and or I can take some really cool technology and get it either designated or certified. Um, have I Am I really hitting what the thrust of the act is on there? What, what should I think of as a company that wants to pick up the phone and say, I need some help with Safety Act, I think it might apply to me.
1: Sure, um, I guess it will depend on if you are somebody who's offering a service or product in the market versus whether you are an organization that owns its own, you know, facility or program for a facility, and you want to seek protections for what you're doing. If you're an if you're someone who's providing a service or a product, there's a couple of benefits to the program that you should consider. Number one, you're capping your own liability um, exposure, which is obviously first and foremost the most important thing. But secondly, the way that Congress created this um, actually was pretty smart in the fact that they recognize that DHS cannot promote. Um, outright companies that it likes. I mean, if you think about it, even companies that it contracts with, they don't go on commercials and say, we're DHS and we really like this product. So what was a way to get around that? DHS, uh, Congress did two things. Number one, DHS maintains a safety act website where it lists approved technologies, a non-proprietary description. It doesn't promote them, it just says these companies have safety act. So if you're an organization who's selling a service or a product, not only are you getting the protections, but now you're on the DHS website you get a Safety Act seal that you can put on your uh, marketing materials. And then probably the most powerful element, if you're a provider of a technology or service, is that by way of your award, you offer w- limited but dramatic flow down immunity to customers, which is a huge market differentiator.
0: I have no idea what that is. Help me understand. So why.
1: essentially, let's assume that I'm Akmal, the walkthrough magnetometer manufacturer. I make metal detectors. If I get Safety Act, For my metal detector the way i designed it the way i manufacture it the way i test it my user manual that i provide to whatever stadium is using it and my training guidelines let's assume that uh, um, can you run a stadium and i'm selling to you by way of my award you know a couple of things are off the bat that i've been poked and prodded by dhs and dhs has determined me to be effective you can validate that by going on the website and god forbid should an active should a terrorist get through with a weapon that should have been stopped by the magnetometer but does not, you will receive automatic immunity from third-party claims that get filed after the act of terrorism. And your protections from the from my award would um, protect you to the extent that someone alleges you had the bad, you had a bad metal detector there. You shouldn't have used that company. Why'd you choose that company? They don't have their stuff together. You would refi- without doing anything more, you would receive flow down benefits from my award. So now, as I enter the marketplace, if I'm a service provider or product provider, I can say, folks, look at me versus my competitors. I've got Safety Act. I've done the grueling work. I've met DHS's what they're looking for, and by way of my award, I also give you liability protections, which is a really big thing. Um, so. For those who are see, looking, the, thinking about Safety Act, for, from that standpoint, there's a lot of benefits in it. And I think almost 100% of all the companies that have gotten Safety Act would admit, from the very, very large companies to the mom and pops, that they've all gotten better as a, as a result of the process. I mean, I try to be as transparent as possible. This is not something you do in a week. This is not, not an easy paperwork you know, filing thing. Because the protections are so serious and because there is a public trust with this program, right? The people who are running that program know that they're, it's a serious thing to sign off an award like this. So, rightfully so, their review process is, a, is, is a, has a high bar. So you got to be able to prove. And in the, in the example of a magnetometer that I'm building, the spec and I've got the good designs, and I tested in the market in a the lab, then I've tested it outside where, where there's interference and environmental issues. And so, if you're an operator of your own venue, like an airport. Um, as you, as you probably saw on the web, DHS website, uh, Newark Airport has Safety Act, LaGuardia has Safety Act, Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky uh, has Safety Act, um, or a stadium. Um, if you're on an arena, if you're, one, if you're from that perspective, you're looking at it, I'm doing a lot of stuff, and I've got a lot of responsibility, and I don't, you know, can't always get verification from every different association or um, government agency that I'm doing the right thing. This is a way to sort of get a full, thorough review of what you're doing, find out where you can do a little better, and work with the department to get to where you need to be and get those protections.
0: So it sounds like to me you can have a technology. So as in your example, it was a walkthrough magnetometer. Um, what if I have procedures, unique and novel procedures, a security program? What if I do something differently to protect my infrastructure? Are, are there, Can non-tangible things Um, fall under the safety act protection as well
1: yeah that's a great question so technology the term capital T is a little misnomer in the safety act world it's it's a um, uh, term of art in the safety act world technology can be anything that anything that detects uh, prevents deters responds to and or mitigates acts of terrorism so it's a mouthful right Um, but that's good that means um, you don't need to be a widget you can be a process by which you perform risk and vulnerability assessments. You can be a uh, cybersecurity uh, platform. You can be um, training protocols. So you can be a number of different things, which is great because innovation is not just one thing; it's, it's a lot of things.
0: And, and just so I understand, um, you know, many of the new um, autonomous vehicles that we're seeing, whether they're air or they're land, um, they consist of multiple payloads. Um, they consist of multiple subcomponents so if i have a product that uses something that's covered by safety act that safety act if it's used in my product actually flows through to me
1: there is there is flow down coverage uh, potentially for that as well okay um the issue with you raise a really hot topic obviously with the issue with drones and um drone detection and drone uh, mitigation response it's been a big issue in a lot of the, obviously in the areas like uh, aviation and the airport industry. In the sports world, it's a huge topic that's coming up over and over. There's been incidents that, you know, already a handful of incidents that happened in 2017 with drones. And But there is flow down coverage uh, available for, if, if you're using a safety act covered technology or widget or gadget and, and incorporating into a larger product, there's a potential for that. Flow down both up and down. So down to the ultimate user and also up to the manufacturer.
0: Now, if, if I understand the process, and I've done my research on it, it seems that after you go through um, the Safety Act process with the Department of Homeland Security, they kind of can make three different decisions. They can say you're certified, you're designated, or I guess if your product isn't quite ready for prime time in the market, you can get something called a and designation, which I think means you're in operational testing.
1: That's right, exactly.
0: Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the differences and... If you're sitting there in the CEO's chair, how do you decide where your product fits within those three kind of um, designations and certifications that you can get?
1: That's two quick points. One, there's also a fourth option they could deny you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we always like to think of the positive. That's right. You know, that's not podcast. in our vernacular. Failure is not right. our, in our
1: vernacular. Uh, second point. Uh, good on you for picking up that about the developmental test and evaluation, which is the acronym is DTED. Um, that's exactly right. It's for those technologies, you know, the big catch 22 for developers. I mean, really, we're looking the we're always, I mean, this is what the United States does. We innovate, right? We, we're all on the cutting edge, whatever it may be. Um, and this statute tries to help those those folks who are in the lab. For DHS designation and certification, you need to be able to prove it's going to be effective. You need to demonstrate effectiveness in the field. So for those things coming out of the lab, it's hard to get operational effectiveness in the field because you've never, you know, you someone won't let you deploy it on their property because it's never been deployed on a property. So it's the catch-22. Right. Well, how the heck can I get on a yeah. property if I, you know. So what the DTED allows you to do is get some limited designation level coverage for a limited number of locations. On a regular designation, they say, good job on you. Here's your numerical cap on liability. Uh, go deploy as many places as you can. Let's make America safe. Okay. <clears throat> the DTED says the same thing, but it limits you to the number of locations.
0: Um, so that brings us to, I, I still need to think through what's the difference between I'm certified or designated. Do I want to talk to you and, and say I have to be designated because that sounds stronger than certified? Or what's, what's the difference Also great
1: great question. It's something that comes up a lot. So think of designation as the A grade in a in grade school. It's the, it's the A, you did a really great job. It gives you a numerical cap on third-party liability. So it's a big, big uh, benefit to have. It's capping your liability to a number set by DHS. The certification is like the A-plus in grade school. That's immunity, equivalent to the government contractor's defense. But for the first time, it's gonna be used in the private sector. Obviously, government contractor defense is more uh, accustomed to things like you know contracting in the DOD world. I always tell folks to focus on designation first because the bar is high as it should be for any of these awards because you're capping liability exposure. Again, you're limiting, potentially limiting people's ability to recover. So th- it needs to be worth it. So the bar for designation is pretty high and the bar for certification is even higher. So that also goes. F- that's also true for the inverse, not for just the person who wants to get Safety Act for their widget or service. But I tell the same thing for operators of critical infrastructure. What we've been seeing now, and I would do the same thing if I were their shoes, Operators of critical infrastructure, when they go out to RFP on a security component third party vendor that they want to acquire, they use in their property, they make part of the RFP, they make Safety Act part of the RFP a requirement. Anybody bidding on their new contract for bomb dog uh, explosive detection canine services or access control software, you must have Safety Act. Why wouldn't you? You know that that means DHS has vetted them and approved them, and I'm going to get flow down protections for my, my own organization. The The the, the where it might work against you is that you dramatically limit how many folks who have how many folks you can pick from in the marketplace. You don't want to do that. The second thing is, um, if you if you're working with someone that you really like already, let's say a CCTV video management software that doesn't have Safety Act, give them a year and tell them to go get it. You know, you might be using you might be already uh, working with a really great organization. Give them the chance to go get it. Um, but that's the main difference, and and why I caution people from jumping to certification because it is that A plus. I mean, rightfully so. You want to get, you always want to go for the higher award, but it, there's a lot of work that goes behind it.
0: So I'm sitting at my company, and I've heard this podcast, and I say, "This is better than sliced bread. Greatest thing I ever heard of." At what point do I want to bring you in? Knowing that, I'm sure everybody says, "Well, we want to be there from the ground floor," but in the reality do you need to be there when the drawings and the schematics are being put together uh, when you're counting electrons uh, between component parts or can you hit the safety act process a little bit further down in the developmental process or can you have something on the shelf already right. um, where where do you come in and where do you get i i would say the best bang for your buck where it's going to be a quick efficient process for you as a manufacturer
1: sure that's a great question um If you're a product manufacturer, I think it is helpful to begin the conversation after you've got a design and a product in place. It doesn't have to be tested in the operational field yet. I think you might want to speak to someone who does Safety Act, who can give you more information so they can tell you how to take advantage of the DTED. Um, But if you are somebody who's operating a venue, and you know you've got holes to fill and you want to get to a place where you're in better standing to get Safety Act, you want to engage early. The reason why is because it's, not, it's, it's more than just getting your policies and procedures in place. Um, a lot of people can do that. It, you know, it just takes a certain amount of time and you got your policies, your procedures, you've got your manuals, you know what you're supposed to be doing. But then for DHS, you have to have some time that pass so that you can collect effectiveness data. So step one is making sure your plans make sense. Make sure you, you're doing what you need to be doing, evaluating risk the right way and the vulnerabilities and the threats, um, and then also putting plans that actually address those things. Uh, so there are oftentimes or folks who are building new venues, want to bake in security measures so that they're in better position to receive safety act on the back end. Well, if we're there at the table earlier in the process, we're able to tell you, hey, look. You, there, here are some things that you're going to be expected to do, have done once you've completed your design. You want to you want to have a risk and threat, a vulnerability and uh, threat assessment performed so you know your risks. You want to be able to evaluate what uh, impacts different uh, uh, vulnerabilities might have on your venue. Those types of things. So it's early. It's good to engage early on there. But if you're a manufacturer of a product, you want to get your product together first. You want to have the designs there. You know, there's not too much. Other people should be able to impact your designs.
0: And, and I suspect, though, part of this involves getting really at the nuts and bolts of a product. Um, proprietary information, um, you know, the secret sauce, the, the, the secrets of the trade. And if you go to DHS, chances are, don't you think that you'll have a competitor there trying to do the same thing? How do I know that my information is protected and that I just have not given the world the secret to what makes my product better than all the others.
1: Sounds like you've been through the Safety Act before.
0: No, I have not. These are really good
1: questions. I have not, but These are 501 level questions. I read. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. That's a, a, so Safety Act takes this extremely seriously. If you ever need good sleeping material, I can send you the final rule in the the Safety Act legislation, but in it, they take it so seriously that in it, there's actually a a component that talks about confidentiality of the information you provide, because not only are you providing the special sauce on how your product works, but you're also exposing or identifying how to beat a security system in some instances. And then finally, for DHS to set a numerical cap on your liability for designation, you have to provide financials. You gotta tell them how much the company can afford to buy an insurance. And that goes back to the the, the public trust of this program. We want to cap liability so it incentivizes the industry to make moves, but at the same time we've got to make sure there's still some money there for people to recover who are rightfully recovering so Safety Act's not going to guarantee that you you know for designation that you you shouldn't be liable for something but it's going to have a you know a cap on that liable liability so um, this, it, anything that gets submitted to DHS as part of an application gets its own classification called Safety Act Confidential Information, SACI. Um, and uh, DHS is given the authority to use its FOIA exemptions from people who are, who are sending in FOIA requests to find out, wh- what did so-and-so submit an application? And in fact, DHS won't even publicly talk about your application unless it gets approval from the company itself. And anything that's listed on the website is a non-proprietary description after the fact that it's been awarded. So they take that, uh, that very seriously.
0: Um, I want to maybe shift the discussion a little bit um, as, as we draw to a close here. Um, I want to ask you, what does a, a typical client look like? And I know there's no such thing as a typical client, but as I walked into your office and I walked past which a wall that looks like a Hall of Fame, I saw certificates for Safety Act designations and certifications from one end of the wall to the other, and I saw UAV operators, I saw airports, I saw defense contractors, security equipment manufacturers. Um, it was kind of the who's who of high-tech security equipment. And so, before I ask you what a typical client looks like, I want to ask you what does it mean to have those certificates on the wall? What you know? What what, what does it tell you about what you do, and tell you about um, the folks that come looking? For your assistance in us,
1: you, you got to make sure you stop me here if I get carried away. But I always joke that there's a, a part of my day where I, you know, I'm standing on my soapbox and the American flag is flowing in the background in slow motion and the music's playing because when you start to think about what this program's doing, it kind of goes back to my earlier point. It's pretty, it's pretty powerful. It's it's not only powerful in it in that the nation is being safer as a result, but it's also extremely interesting. I mean, really innovative companies. That are doing innovative things, and it doesn't have to be all widgets and gadgets. It can be the way that they process threat data, and the way that they train guards, and the way that they do even the mundane tasks is, is so innovative. You know, we've got people when you take classic you know security guard training who are now using um, video and and, uh, and and making it collaborative, collaborative and interactive. We've got one uh, uh, client in the in the in the sports world. Who, got, who has their uh, stadium announcer doing the training videos, voiceover on the training videos, just finding ways to get people energized and, and engaged, and it's really some neat stuff. So, you know, I always get a little, um, maybe a little extra cheesy when I talk about this, but it's, you know, the, the common thread among all these companies, whether, because we've represented explosive detection uh, canine teams, we've represented some of the largest organizations and most successful organizations and sports teams, to the mom and pops who are innovating really cool technology, they all have one common theme, which is they're trying to push the envelope. They found a way to try to make the nation safer, and uh, they're really proud of what they're doing. And we're just one small part of that, trying to help uh, get their story out there and, and make sure DHS is aware, because you know a lot of times, DHS will hear about things coming out of the Safety Act office and then collaborate with them for additional things. So that's kind of the common theme I see about them. And and we're just happy to, you know, proud to be in the middle of it and just kind of joining the team, so to speak.
0: And I think that's a fine place to end this edition of Thinking Through Autonomy. Well, thank you for having me, appreciate it. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you for joining us and we'll have you back again soon. Well, thank you. This has been a joy.